0: Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I have a new segment on my Tuesday episodes called read a Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes if you would like to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes and early reads with pre-pub author chats. For March, there are two books, Colleen Oakley's new book, The Mostly True Story of Tanner and Louise, and Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Cheryl Head about her wonderful book, Time's Undoing. Cheryl is an award-winning writer, television producer, broadcast executive, and media funder. When not writing fiction, she consults on a wide range of diversity issues. She is a senior associate at Livingston Associates and a member of Crime Writers of Color, Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and the BoucherCon Board of Directors. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her partner and her two dogs who provide canine supervision. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lovallo,
0: Welcome, Cheryl. How are you today? I'm doing
1: very well. Thank you for having me, Cindy.
0: I am so glad you're here because I loved your book so very much, and I can't wait to talk about it.
1: Oh, I just, that makes my heart sing.
0: <laughs> well, good. Well, I still feel like I'm spending time with them. I, Even though I finished it a couple of days ago, it's just still there with me, and I just keep thinking about them and your story and everything, so I can't wait to talk all about it.
1: Excellent. Looking forward to it.
0: Well, before we do that, will you give me a quick synopsis of Time's Undoing for those that won't have read it yet?
1: Um, This is a a story based on a family tragedy, unfortunately. The book is written in two timelines, 1929, where in the voice of my grandfather, he talks about coming to Birmingham, Alabama during the Jim Crow era. And then in 2019, my protagonist, Megan, uh, is a journalist from Detroit whose great-grandfather has been killed by police in Birmingham. Uh, she uh, convinces her editorial team at the Detroit Free Press to let her travel to Birmingham and just try to pick together some of the clues that uh, will help her understand the details of her great-grandfather's murder. It's a, it's a kind of a combination of historical fiction and crime fiction.
0: I think that's what appealed to me so much about it is that combination, because my two favorite genres are historical fiction and mystery thriller. Uh-huh. So you put it all together into one book.
1: Yeah, it it was daunting. Uh, I will say that I had so much fun and kind of kind of an organic process in writing the historical sections and a lot more hard work <laughs> writing the contemporary sections.
0: I can see that. And I felt like the contemporary sections took up a little bit more of the book. So that means that part was probably really kind of weighed you down at times.
1: Yeah, yeah, because that was the part where the mystery is made and unfolds. And so that's where all the logic and plotting and uh, sequencing had to happen that you want to see in a a good mystery book. The, The historical section, I really was just letting myself imagine and letting, uh, you know, I had a lot of research to do for that particular section, but it just was uh, hard, emotionally hard, but much more organic.
0: Well, I'm so curious because I know you involved your family story as a jumping off point for this book. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure.
1: Uh, Growing up, my mother and her mother Often spoke of the the murder of my grandfather by Birmingham, Alabama police back in the nineteen twenties. Uh, um, he and his and my grandmother had gone to Birmingham. He was a carpenter. He'd gone there to work. After his death, he they 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 came back to my my grandmother came back to St. Petersburg, Florida, where they lived. We had very little details about that, as you might imagine. In 1929, Negroes, as they were called then, didn't take on the police. They didn't demand investigations. They didn't do too much arguing or fussing about things that happened in their lives because the Klan was ubiquitous and all the institutions in the Jim Crow South. And so often the stories about my grandfather were whispered. They sometimes talked away from the kids. You know how family members will, the adults will talk in one room and you can only hear snippets of conversation. But over the decades, my mother talked to me about it in particular because she thought she would one day write about it to get some answers about her father's death. And uh, you know, I often thought about writing the story, but I had so few details. And I'm 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 a kind of writer who likes to plot, so I like to have some facts and I like to have some resource uh, materials. And uh, didn't have that. But when George Floyd died in 2020, and we were just beginning. Uh, our COVID uh, stay-at-home uh, protocols. I thought this is the time to write the story, and so I set off on that, on that process. Uh, it was an emotional process. I was able in doing my research for the book, however, to find a couple of documents that were important to my family. We never had my uh, grandfather's death certificate, and I was able to find that. And I also came across an article in the Saint Petersburg. Uh, times where his family and my grandmother's family lived that uh, had a headline that said local Negro killed by Birmingham police. And that was my grandfather.
0: So you include those details in the book. And I was so curious how much of it was actually what had happened with you and how much you had to fill in because of what you just mentioned, how little detail there would have been, because I'm sure People living in that time period that were black also really feared retribution, which you talk a little bit about in the story. Yeah. but you don't want to make too big a stink because you don't want to harm everybody else around you as well. sadly. I mean, it's a terrible state of things, but that's how it was then.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And I tried to use as much detail as I had uh, about my grandfather's death in the book. Uh, there, are things, there are some things I left out. There's some things for legal reasons we didn't name some names <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But um it was a thought a good melding of what I knew and what I imagined. Uh and it's fiction. And so and we call it crime fiction, but it's filled with the details of the memories and the and the stories uh that I've heard about my my grandfather over the, the nine decades he was he, he lived. He he was killed.
0: I loved that, and I think that's why the book did resonate so much with me because I could feel that it was personal to you.
1: Mm-hmm. There were times, Cindy, when I was in the process of doing research, I was looking through newspapers.com, for instance, I must have looked through, I don't know, 100 hours of archival newspapers. And when I came across the article about his death, I remember just sitting there, just stunned, you know, just stunned. I was in my dining room writing that day. And, uh, you know, I sat there for, you know, a half an hour. And, you know, eventually Cried and then eventually called my my siblings and told my partner and I. You know it was just a shocking moment and then I realized I was I was mirroring what was happening with my protagonist, which just kind of made it otherworldly (laughs) a few times.
0: Definitely, and I guess again, you know that was where I could feel that this was a personal story and what Megan was going through was probably some of what you had gone through, and I just thought it was so well done.
1: Oh, thank you very much. I, I will say that there are times. When I thought maybe my, my grandfather was helping me and pointing me in the right directions. Because there, you know, there were times when I was looking through those newspapers thinking, oh my God, there are a lot of things in here. There are a lot of Robert Harringtons in the world, <laughs> that kind of thing.
0: Well, and I don't want to have any spoilers, but your mentioning your grandfather it makes me think about another aspect of the book I really liked as the story progressed. So I will say that I thought that was very clever and I enjoyed it, but I don't want to ruin it. That's a tease. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to make sure people really want to pick up your book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's sweet of you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: well, obviously the connection to Birmingham is apparent. How did you decide to set Megan living in Detroit and coming down to Birmingham?
1: That that was uh, my conceit. I'm I'm from Detroit, born and raised there. I um, write the Charlie Mack Motown Mysteries. They're set in Detroit in the mid 2000s, and uh, I have an affinity for Detroit. I've lived in Washington, D.C. now, going on probably 30 years, but uh, I, I think Detroit's one of those bellwether cities where over the course of American history, it shows its head around social issues and political issues and artistic issues. And uh, so I've, I, I set a lot of my books in Detroit. I felt natural. I, I always grew up uh, reading the Detroit Free Press. I thought it was a mighty fine newspaper. And it just felt natural to set my young
0: protagonist as a journalist there. Cheryl, a couple of times you mentioned a similarity between Birmingham and Detroit.
1: They both have Woodward Avenues, which I discovered in, in writing about uh, Birmingham, Av- Alabama. They both were cities that in their heyday, Birmingham's was called the magic city in the 20s and 30s because of its preeminence in the steel uh, industry. And in Detroit, as you know, was the auto industry uh, capital of the world from the 40s through the, the late 60s. And so they have that manufacturing environment. It's a place that has, uh, I think, really strong communities. Lots of uh, single families change uh, around race over the course of the decades. And so I did see a lot of similarities in the city. And I, You know, I think Birmingham's a, a fine city, and I really like the people there. They're just very kind. You know, that Southern hospitality really shows through if you go there now. Uh, I was there uh, to visit last year again, and uh, I just uh, I marveled at how sweet that like the young people are in helping older people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Houston, and so okay. we're the same way here. So that whole Southern mentality, everybody's so friendly all the time. But sometimes, as you talk about in Birmingham in your book, that can mask some things, and it definitely was masking some things in Birmingham.
1: I think so. I, I do also think that cities must live with their legacy, good or bad. And uh, because Birmingham has uh, has been so complicit in institutional racism over its decades, as you know, I'm talking about post-Civil War and during Jim Crow and Reconstruction, up through the Civil Rights era in the, in the 60s, that that still permeates. You know, I, I talk about the soul of a city and how the earth kind of holds those secrets there intact. And I'm sure Birmingham wants to rewrite that history in some ways to to be seen as a a different kind of South. And I think it's there and I think it's on its way. I just think it doesn't shake off easy, not when you've had decades and decades and decades of being at the heart of some of the pain for uh, African-Americans in this country.
0: Well, in the whole state of Alabama, I mean, one of the places that definitely it was difficult to be black or travel through there being black in that window of time.
1: Uh, Birmingham was a Klan stronghold. It's, very, it's in a lot of books how much the Klan had permeated all the institutions of Birmingham. We know about in the 60s, the bombing of the, uh, the 16th Street Baptist Church. So yes, Alabama has been at the forefront of our struggles around race, and uh, I hope it's part of the solutions around race.
0: Absolutely. And the freedom rides when they came through Alabama didn't go well. So I mean, there's just a variety of things yeah. that they do need to come to terms with, and it sounds like they are, and that is progress, and it's slow, but you hope they get there eventually.
1: That's exactly right. And then Detroit has its own, you know, battles to fight around uh, around public image. It certainly was a place where in the early, late 80s and 90s we re- they really focused on demonizing Auto manufacturers, Asian automatic auto uh, auto manufacturers, and that was a terrible time for Detroit. There were people who were who were killed around that kind of hate talk. Um, you see it again around COVID, you know. So, you know, I'd like to pay attention to the things that happen in our history that have changed somewhat or morphed someone somewhat in our current times. But it's so important to remember where we came from and how we got to where we are now.
0: And I think it's difficult for cities like Detroit. They filed bankruptcy at one point. There was so much news around the city and how it was falling apart. And I think it's hard to rehab that image because I'm sure Detroit is wonderful now. But I think it sticks in a lot of people's minds all of the things you just talked about, plus the bankruptcy and yep, the white flight or all flight, and you know just the fact that the city was struggling.
1: Yeah, it's it's why Cindy I set my Charlie Mack Motown mysteries in the mid 2000s. That was kind of one of the low points for Detroit. The, the mayor was under investigation by the FBI. It was on the brink of bankruptcy. The auto industry was not doing well. It was, you know, it's a perf- perfect kind of environment for murder and mayhem, and so therefore very good for a crime series. But Detroit is trying to regroup. You know, it has uh, rebuilt its downtown. It's very lovely. They put all their sports teams downtown. So they're doing kind of this uh, downtown outward revitalization However, they have a lot to do with the neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods have been so important to Detroit's uh, legacy.
0: Absolutely. Well, you referenced earlier looking back through a lot older newspapers. Was that just so fascinating? Not just for the things you discovered, but also just such a glimpse into a specific window in time. Well, you put your finger right on it,
1: it was so helpful to have access to the digital archives of both the mainstream uh, newspapers in Birmingham and. A couple of the black newspapers. It did more for me than any other book I read or any, uh, any article I read because it gives you a glimpse at the day to day life of people. I looked at the want ads and the, the adver- advertisements for clothing and, and uh, cars and piano lessons and all those kinds of things. It, I looked at the society pages and the sports pages and it really gave you a glimpse of what uh, the kind of vitality there was in black life uh, in the 20s in Birmingham. At the same time, we had this, it was very segregated. There were these, um, these Jim Crow laws that Birmingham dubbed Black codes. Blacks and whites weren't, for instance, allowed to even play checkers together. So there was deep, deep uh, segregation, deep prejudice. At the same time, Black families and Black communities were finding joy and finding ways to not only live, but thrive in that environment.
0: Doesn't that just seem so crazy to you that a white person and a black person couldn't play chess together? I mean, who's going to enforce that?
1: Uh, they, and they did enforce it, believe me. you know, Not only the police, but everyday citizens.
0: In your book, there are a number of times where Robert is encountering different issues that he's really worried about. He drives up upon somebody by accident, and it has to literally impact every aspect of their life. Anytime they're interacting with a a white person, especially some of these that are clearly hate-filled, it's a super stressful situation for him. I just would hate that.
1: Can you imagine living with that hourly and daily stress in your life? No. Where maybe the only time you sigh uh, a sigh of relief is when you get home to your, your bedroom. You
0: know, Yes, you're sitting in peace all by yourself or with your wife and child and knowing that, okay, I'm going to be okay here as long as someone doesn't show up looking for me.
1: For these few hours, I may be okay. You know, it's not, it's a, it's a, a miracle to me that, you know, high blood pressure <laughs> hasn't taken more Black people out, living with that daily, daily stress of what interaction might get me killed. And unfortunately, you know, that's, we see it today, you know, Black people driving in cars who get pulled over and shot and killed by police. It's happening too often that we should not ignore it.
0: Way, way too often and i liked that you included some of those in your book as well because i think it's really it's important to remember that it's happening all the time and i think it's a little bit like these school shootings you almost become mm-hmm. numb to it because it's just happening all the time and so it's nice to have that highlighted focused on a little bit to remember this has been happening for a long time and continues to be happening
1: and if i can just start a conversation about that through this book It doesn't have to be hurtful to anyone, but a conversation that we are seeing some of the same kind of actions a hundred years later, I think it keeps us focused on the ideals of our our democracy. I'm a I'm a patriot, true blue, you know, but at the same time, I want to be able to constructively criticize the policies of our country that don't work for all Americans. I'm I'm a little resentful that people. Uh, on, uh, like white supremacist groups and hate groups think they can take the flag and make it their symbol. I'm not going to let that happen. That's my symbol, too. The story of black immigration to this country is one framed in slavery and captivity and prejudice, and all that's true. And at the same time, we are here and we are patriots and we love this
0: country. I'm so glad you mentioned the flag because this has been something that has been driving me crazy for the last four or five years. (laughs) You know, I too am a patriot and I love the United States. There are definitely things that need to be fixed, but that doesn't mean I don't love my country. And I feel like the flag has just been hijacked by these crazy people. You you see the flag and it initially almost sends you a bad message. And I have to be like, no, 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 reset. There are plenty of great people who love our country and it's just difficult that it has become a symbol of all of this hate.
1: And I think we have to retake that, that flag back is a symbol of what it is meant to stand for a, a place where all kinds of people have come to this country seeking freedom seeking you know liberty and ways to make their lives better. I don't think we give up that symbol to people on the fringe I just I'm not willing to do that
0: I agree and last time around when they were having elections and we had signs out front I'd seen a neighbor put a bunch of little flags behind her mm-hmm. signs and I was like, oh that's a great idea I went and did uh-huh. the same thing. I'm like, I am not going to let the flag be lost to these crazy people. Excellent. That's a great idea. I'll do that next time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was like, we will maintain the flag. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you hope your readers take away from this book?
1: I hope that they will say to themselves, wow, I didn't know. I hadn't thought about the fact that some of the goals of the Black Lives Movement were were also at play uh, a century ago, that this notion of Excessive force by police is not a new is not a new thing. I hope that it will help people think about that differently. I hope it will help um, readers uh, look at the parts of the book that show Black life and Black joy and make them smile and make them see themselves in those moments of, of family and community unity. Uh, you know, there are lots of things that we have in similarity, all Americans have in similarity. And I hope they will see those pieces and also be willing to uh, continue a conversation about uh, race uh, and social justice in this country.
0: I think that point about how much we share is so valid and is one that needs to be kept at the forefront of the conversation. Because I do feel like as we talk about some of these hate groups, their whole purpose is to try to separate and divide and make these great barriers. And I think to remember, we are all way more alike than we are different is a super helpful reminder.
1: Uh, and I, th- I think there are probably some generational gaps in that knowledge. I think some some of our young people understand it better than, than older people. But I, I hope it starts a conversation. I think this country will be better and smarter and more relevant to the rest of the world when it has an honest, continuing conversation about how race impacts almost everything we do. And I I think I I want us to be the best. You know, I think we can get there. I'm kind of Pollyannish in that way, perhaps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right, though. Quit all the infighting and then just pull ourselves together. Yeah. Well, I love the title. I always like to talk about titles and covers. And it's not only the title of the book, but it's the title of the last chapter. So can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. That title just kind of came to me at one point. I was thinking about going back and forth in time on these chapters, and I was thinking about what we talked about earlier, Cindy, about how, how places have hold um, their, their, their past history in the Earth. Uh, there's a line in there and it says, uh, "The Earth holds all the dirt." Uh, you know And I was thinking about how, even though times change, memories don't necessarily change. And spirit doesn't change, and so it, at some point it came to me when I was I was writing it, and I re, I remember just sticking it at the top of the story. I think before it had Grandpa's Story, <laughs> the lovely title was Grandpa Story. <laughs> <laughs> and then when uh then the publisher came to me and said, you know, what about this title? Maybe we can come up with a better one. And I thought, I don't think so. I think this is the title. Uh, you know, it was it was one of the moments where. It certainly was kind of a spiritual moment for me when I came to that title, and I, I love that it's there. And it, every time I think about it, it has more resonance for me. There's a uh, there's an epigraph at the beginning of the book that says, um, memory lasts longer than our lifetimes, or something like that, or life, lifespans. I have got the book. I could read
0: it. Our memory is longer than our lifespan, and it's Professor Christy Botzen at University of Michigan. Uh, Christy Dotson, yes. Dotson. Okay, sorry, I don't have my context in. And
1: she's a a professor of philosophy and epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. I had to look it up. And I think that's such an important thing to to understand that memories go long after our our generations die off. I think people can hold memories in their bones. You know, I I think uh, the things that happen to us and happen to our communities and happen to our countries reside with us long after we're we're gone and I th- and that has a lot to do with this times undoing uh, title i'm going my next book as a matter of fact i was thinking about this morning is going to be partly historical and i'm going to talk about memory it's going to start off once upon a time god gave us memories that's my first line. You're the first to hear this, Cindy.
0: Oh, yay. I love that. I always like being first. <laughs> I'm the first child in my family, you know, so I am always like to be the first. So. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Stays with me my whole life. <laughs> well, I think it's a stunning title, and I really think it encapsulates the book. And it's just, and I love the cover. I know we're on a timetable, so I'm just going to tell you, I do love the cover. So I just think it's stunning. And every time I see it, I'm like, oh, it's just really beautiful with his face inside of her head and all that. It's just so well done. But before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: Oh, my goodness. I've read a whole bunch. I was doing uh, judging some contests last year. So I read a whole bunch of mysteries, um, two that I really think stand out. One uh, just came out earlier this month. Ed Amers, "No Home for Killers. Ed is such a, a stunning thriller writer. He's got a great sense of humor. You see that in the book. Uh, and he has a different take on, on writing crime fiction. And then the other book is one called Shuttered by uh, a young Native American uh, crime fiction writer, Ramona Emerson. I highly recommend it. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's so many themes in it that just uh, fascinate me. She's uh, Her protagonist is a police uh, photographer who's Native American. It's a beautiful book. I think uh, I think it's really getting a lot of awards, I think just got a Penn Faulkner finalist status.
0: I've seen it around and it looks like something that would really appeal to me. So you're encouraging me to pick it up. Excellent. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much. This was an absolutely delightful conversation. And I can't wait to talk with you next time with the book that you're telling me is coming out that I now know the first line to.
1: And thank you so much for doing such a deep read of the book and asking these great
0: questions, Cindy. Absolutely. And I can't wait for everybody else to read Time's Undoing. The news
1: landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So,
0: five minute news is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at ThoughtsFromApage. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.